more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. But there's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. You're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Joseph Valencia. And I'm Hannah Stewie. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students and postdoctoral fellows in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of those students each week. If you're a graduate student or a postdoc at OSU and you're interested in coming on our show, or you just want to find out more about the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and podcast pages. This episode of Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and tonight on the show, our guest is Dr. Grace Dietzler. Grace is a recently graduated PhD in microbiology. She defended her thesis just last week. Uh, Grace is one of our very own hosts, um, and this is her sort of exit interview because she just graduated and will be moving to Boston for the next stage. So welcome, Grace. Thank you. I'm so excited to be on the other side of the show this time. Yeah, it's been a while. So you were on the show in 2021 or 2022, right before you joined? Uh, 2019, actually. 2019, so yeah. it's been a while. It's been a minute. <laughs> so probably some things have changed since then. Um, and so what we're going to do is kind of recount how the rest of your PhD went. Um, yeah. So do you want to give us sort of the overall contours of how that happened? Sure, just like what what ended up happening. What ended up happening, um, your elevator pitch kind of. My for, elevator. Yeah. Yeah, I had to think about this a lot um, when it came to my defense last week, because as you'll kind of hear in this episode, my research took two very different directions. And at the end, it came time to kind of try to tie them together. And so I took a long time kind of thinking about what are some of the common themes. And I'll, I'll kind of start with with that. So my research broadly looked at something called the double hit hypothesis or multiple hit hypothesis. There's a couple different ways you can call it. And this is essentially the premise that um, multiple cumulative or accumulating stressors uh, result in like stacking adverse effects on the host and can lead to an increased vulnerability to the development of diseases or different conditions. And there are a lot of different ways this um, hypothesis has been applied to different, the development of different kinds of uh, diseases or disorders. And one thing that a lot of these studies kind of leave out is the component of the gut microbiome. And so my research as a microbiologist was specifically interested in what is the role of the gut microbiome in mediating the uh, accumulation of these different stressors and what do those stressors do to the gut microbiome itself? And then how does that in turn affect the host? So probably listeners have heard talk of this thing called the microbiome in the context of, of human health. Can you define a little bit what 
this microbiome is? Yeah. So when we say the gut microbiome, that refers to the community of microorganisms, uh, including but not limited to bacteria, archaea, viruses, fungi, prokaryotes, uh, and others that occupy the digestive tract. And when we say gut or digestive tract, we're usually referring to the large colon. Um, sorry, the large intestine or the colon. Or the colon. the um, small intestine has some bacteria, um, but not as many. And same with the stomach. There are very few uh, bacteria that can tolerate the very acidic environment of the stomach. So gut usually equals uh, large intestine. So I imagine that um, you are not studying the human microbiome. Um, can you tell us a bit about which sort of realm you're studying the microbiome in? Sure. So, yeah, when I talk about the gut microbiome and I was here talking about, you know, the large intestine, small intestine, those are um, organs we associate with humans typically. But my research was actually looking in a couple different animal models. And so first uh, part of my research looked at a mouse model and the role of the gut microbiome in the development of uh, autistic-like phenotype in a mouse uh, when it comes to behavior. And then the second half of my research focused on the humble honeybee, which is pretty incredible to me that honeybees, even though they are invertebrates, they're insects, they also have a digestive tract that is colonized by bacteria and, mm -hmm. and other microorganisms. Is it a similar division into, uh, can we talk about a small intestine, large intestine there? It's definitely much more simple, but there is still uh, like a hind gut and a mid gut. Uh, and there is a delineation of the different regions. And just like in humans, we do see that um, there are differences in the number of bacteria that are in each of these regions. And for honeybees, it's very specifically divided uh, up into what kinds of species occupy those different regions mm -hmm. as well. And when we're talking about honeybees, obviously there's wild honeybees and there's agricultural honeybees. And I understand that you work with more agricultural honeybees, correct? Yeah, that's correct. So when I'm talking about my research on honeybees, I tend to think of it as uh, looking at livestock, perhaps. Uh, bee colonies in the United States are, and globally, are used to pollinate over 130 different crops uh, and contribute, I think, something like $20 billion to the economy wow. annually. So they're very important uh, from an economic perspective, an agricultural perspective, and uh, from a scientific perspective. I know sometimes we hear about um, the loss of, of bees as pollinators in the wild. Um, does your Are there any differences between what the microbiome would look like for the type, the sort of domesticated ones that you research versus the, the wild ones? That's a great question. So there are hundreds, if not thousands of different species of wild bees with honeybees, uh, that we, with managed bees, we're typically talking about honeybees. I, I, in fact, I think we're only talking about honeybees. I can't think of another mm -hmm. bee species that is domesticated, but, um, when we look at the microbiome, there are some similarities across the different species of bees, especially what we call corbiculate bees, which are bees that gather pollen. So bumblebees also fall into this category. Uh, they have some differences, but their microbiomes are actually pretty similar to honeybees as well in terms of um, maybe the functional niches that the bacteria uh, occupy. Yeah, because I guess what that was making me think of or wonder about is if there's been any sort of intentional breeding of 
mm. of bees for whatever properties you might care about if you're managing them? Has that changed the coevolution with the Oh, that's a fascinating question. And I I am not sure. I don't know too much about the domestication of bees and how that changes them. Because when we think about the domestication of other animals, right, we think about, you know, dogs, we um, select for the traits that we want to have. But I don't know if we do that with bees. I I would almost guess that the environmental uh, differences kind of shape their microbiome and and maybe shape their behavior a little bit more, like uh, the kinds of Um, flowers they have access to, the kinds of pathogens they're exposed to, the maybe the pesticides and herbicides that they're exposed to, those can can really shape the gut microbiome and also uh, really inform the health of the bee as well. So earlier when you were drawing the thread um, between your prior research and this, you mentioned that double hit hypothesis. Mm. Um, Do you want to talk about what what are the hits uh, in, in this context? Sure. So like what I kind of, should I go into what I'm studying basically? Yeah. Or what I studied, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess, past tense now. <laughs> studied. Uh, yeah. So my research with honeybees was looking at what happens when you give a bee that has been stressed by some kind of pathogen. In our case, we used uh, a microsporidian parasite called Nozema serenae. It is one of the most common uh, infectious agents of of honeybees, especially managed bee colonies, and it's a gut pathogen, so it localizes in the gut. It stresses the bee's immune system, and so it makes an ideal um, target for if we want to study the effect of pathogens on the gut microbiome. And so we took bees that had been stressed by this pathogen, meaning we had exposed them to this pathogen, nozema. I'll call it nozema from now on. And we wanted to see what would happen when we gave them a probiotic. So probiotics are also a multi-billion dollar industry in the United States. However, they are largely unregulated, uh, even when it comes to um, human consumption, when it comes to the consumption of probiotics by animals, including honeybees. And I will, I'm going to define probiotics, and then I, I want to mention something interesting that happened during the course of writing my thesis. Sure. <laughs> so uh, probiotics are generally defined as um, a consumable bacteria or bacteria, microorganism product that is supposed to convey some kind of benefit when consumed. Um, so you might have heard, if you walk into the grocery store, you can buy lactobacillus probiotics off the shelf. However, like I mentioned previously, these are largely unregulated. And actually, when I was writing my dissertation, I wrote the sentence, um, to date, the FDA has approved no probiotics in the United States. And on April 26th, I had to go back and revise that statement because (laughs) the FDA did approve the first ever, and I think they called it a live therapeutic product. It's essentially a probiotic um, by the uh, pharmaceutical company Ceres used to treat... uh, recurrent Clostridium difficile infections, which is a very intense hospital infection. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did have to go back and I had to make a little footnote and say, to date, one probiotic <laughs> has been approved. <laughs> but that's for use in humans. I imagine those folks had to go a lot more into the details of how the supposed benefit arrives than the people who are selling their their products on the shelves, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. So these, these probiotics that you can buy on the shelves and, and I'll focus here specifically on the ones that you can buy for honeybees, um, because they're not regulated, they're not really tested. 
they don't go through kind of rigorous clinical trials. Um, with the bees, the companies that we uh, were looking at, um, both are commercially available to beekeepers. You can buy them on Amazon, I'm pretty sure. Um, but they provide no evidence for any of the claims that they make on their product. They have on the bag that their product will um, increase the population of healthy gut flora in the bee microbiome, that they will help increase detoxification of pesticides, um, increase their resistance to pathogens, like all these things that sound really good. But then, you know, you look around and they don't actually have any studies that back that up. Right. So how did you go about investigating these probiotics? What what was kind of the initial research question and how did things turn out? Yeah. So I kind of fell into this project a little bit. I'll start there. Um, as you heard at the top of the interview, my my first kind of thesis project was on an autism mouse model. Very different. <laughs> Very different. But in my second year, I got approached by a uh, postdoc in the honeybee lab here at Oregon State who was like, we want to look at the microbiome. There's these probiotics that are being sold uh, that beekeepers are really interested in, but there's not that much evidence out there. And so, you know, the beekeepers want to know, are these okay to use for their bees? And so she brought on myself and my advisor onto this project. And initially the question was, you know, very broadly, do these probiotics do what they say they do? And of course they have a ton of different claims. We can't test all of them. So we just kind of started with, all right, if we have a bee that is infected with some kind of infectious disease and we give it these probiotics, does it improve mortality outcomes? Does it make a positive change in the gut microbiome, meaning does it, you know, increase the number of good bacteria that are in the gut microbiome? Um, and that was the first kind of broad question that we were looking at with this study. And so how, what was the experimental design like for that? Yeah. So this was actually done in a laboratory setting. Um, so it's a little bit less like the real use application would be in the field, but doing it in a laboratory setting really allowed us to control for all these variables. Uh, we knew exactly, you know, the temperature and the length of time that they were being subjected to these different things. We could really control, you know, the dose that each cage got of the probiotics and of the, um, infectious agent. And so we had 150 bees in each cage for each experimental treatment group. We had three cages, so we had replicates. And I think by the end of the study, we had over 6,000 bees. 6,000 bees. (laughs) Yeah. And (laughs) you personally are handling 6,000 bees over the course of this. Oh, yeah. Well, I was part of a team. Um, We had several undergraduates, uh, this postdoc I mentioned previously, um, and uh, other people who really kind of helped out because it is 6,000 bees is a lot to manage. Yeah. What is, what is that process like? <laughs> so when the bees are first emerging from their comb, so when they first come out of the little honeycomb, um, they cannot fly yet and they can't sting yet either. And so you can literally just scoop them up in your hand. I think I have a picture of me somewhere with just a handful of bees. <laughs> and so we would scoop them. And then count one by one, 150 bees into each cage. All right, that one's done. And then we also had to make sure that we were just getting the worker bees. We didn't want to look at the queens mm. or the drones. So, so honeybees are social insects. 
and they have a very structured like social hierarchy with a single queen at the top and she's the only fertile female and then all the worker bees are sterile females and then the drones are males and the queen and the drones are you know kind of also of research interest but they are unique and so you know we just wanted Mm. to kind of focus on the worker bees um for now so also you know checking to make sure that their eyes weren't too big because then maybe they were a drone and it was all while they're they're very small and yeah yeah yep and buzzing around and then you know you start they, they can start to fly within a couple hours of emerging so we would really try to hurry and get them all done in the morning but by the end of the day there would usually be a couple bees flying around the lab wow so that's all like very time regulated yeah okay definitely yeah and then um yeah, you, you mentioned dividing them into different treatment groups. So we have infected bees with the nosema, mm-hmm. and then we we treat some of them, or you treat some of them with with the probiotics. Yeah, am I getting that right? Yeah, and then we also had controls that received no intervention, so no infection and no probiotics, and then. A kind of a secondary part of this study was also looking at the probiotics by themselves. So no uh, intervention with, or sorry, no infection with the nosema um, pathogen. And then getting back to that idea of it being very time regulated, you then follow it over time. Yeah. So we carried out the study for 14 days. This is um, pretty uh, short in terms of the honeybee lifespan. Actually, I take that back. In the wild, bees can live um, five to six, sorry, six to eight weeks, I believe, mm-hmm. during the summer months. Uh, in the lab, their lifespan is considerably shorter. Um, and so we were looking at them for two weeks to make sure that we weren't, you know, we were counting mortality, so we didn't want to see them dying off just because they had kind of reached the end of their natural lifespan in the cages. Uh, and also because this is the period of time where um, they are not developed into full foraging bees yet. So bees also develop into different roles throughout their lifespan. When they first emerge, they are nurse bees. Um, later in their life, I think two to three weeks later, they transition to forager bees. And so we wanted to kind of control it for just one stage of their life. Mm-hmm. And again, this, this study was very preliminary. We um, No one had really tested these probiotics before, and so we just wanted to do you know, as many bees as we can and get as much data as we can and hopefully, pro, uh, you know, kind of pave the way for future follow-ups. And when you're tracking mortality, I assume that means you're just counting dead bees. You got it. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So every other day, uh, the team of undergrads and I would go into the lab, pull out the cages one shelf at a time, <laughs> count the number of dead bees in the bottom, uh, write it on a piece of paper oh. and then just do that. Goes in a spreadsheet somewhere. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Yep. So what were your expectations at the beginning of this in terms of what do you think was going to happen when you dosed certain bees with probiotics? Yeah. So at the beginning of this study, I was, of course, skeptical that the probiotics would provide the benefit they said they would just because, like I said, there was no um, there was no evidence to back that up. And I kind of knew that historically probiotics are kind of touted um, as this beneficial thing without really, you know, having too much evidence. So I was skeptical, but I thought, okay, you know, worst case scenario, it doesn't do anything Mm -hmm. to the bees and they just, you know, there's no difference between them and the controls. 
knowing what I know now, that was a, a little bit naive, I think. <laughs> yeah. So you're, you're alluding to something um, that was kind of surprising for the results, I think. Absolutely shocking. So what we found was that the bees that were infected by this pathogen and then given one of these probiotics as a treatment actually had increased rates of death than the honeybees that were just infected with the pathogen alone. And so this is kind of where that double hit comes back in. I was not expecting the probiotics to be another hit, but it seems like the addition of these products on top of the infection was stressing the bees out enough that they were dying more often. And how did that relate to like control? So like your like baseline control of not infected, no probiotics to not infected with probiotics. Yeah. So the um, bees that got the the infection. Oh, wait, sorry. Let me make sure I'm answering the right question here. <laughs> Can you repeat that one more so, time? <laughs> so none of the bees are infected. Uh-huh. But one of them gets probiotics. Probiotics compared yes. to, thank you. Yeah, th- th- this, uh, this study had something like 30 treatment groups. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, yeah, um, with just all the different permutations we had. So I just yeah. want to make sure I'm answering that correctly. Yeah, so with the uninfected cohort, we saw a similar phenomenon to a lesser degree. Um, so we still saw a slight increase in the mortality rate of the bees that got probiotics compared to the bees that did not receive probiotics. And this kind of differed a little bit. I I don't want to get too much into the study because it gets a little complicated. We had groups that also received uh, dietary intervention with pollen because that kind of mimics what the bees diet is like in the wild. And this addition of pollen kind of threw a a wrench into everything and, and made the story a little bit more complicated. So I can't say, you know, that all probiotic compared to all uninfected probiotic compared to no probiotic groups were, um, higher in their death rates, but they were all like trending higher. Mm-hmm. But it was definitely most significant in the infected, in the infected group, where you have yeah. that double hit. Yes, exactly. So we can probably say that it is not having the intended protective effect. I would say minimum. so. Yeah. But then the story gets more interesting when we look at the gut microbiome. Yeah. So to look at the gut microbiome of the bee, we used 16S sequencing, which essentially preferentially amplifies Um, a gene that is only found in bacteria. And so that way we can look at all the bacteria in a sample. And when we did this, we found that, so the nosema, this infection, knocks down the number of good bacteria, which we expected. This has been shown in other studies that nosema will do this. Um, I think the reason why is still a little bit, we, we don't entirely know yet, probably has something to do with taking away nutritional resources. And so some of these beneficial bacteria were knocked down in the bees that got nosema. When we look at the bees that got that were infected with nosema and got the probiotics, we actually saw that some of those good bacteria were restored to be at levels comparable to controls. However, so this so this sounds good, right? Before before I get too we're, much further. Good bacteria. Go yeah. Uh were any of those that were restored actually in the probiotic that they were administered? They were not. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So complex uh, interactions here between the gut microbiome and the probiotic and the host. Um, I, I, I sat at my computer for a long time really figuring out <laughs> how to tell <laughs> yeah. this story. And I think it's still kind of developing a little bit. 
so back from the dead are these these good bacteria. But, but that's not the end of the story. That's not the end of the story. So so the good bacteria are in comparable levels to the controls. However, I was interested in kind of zooming out of not just looking at the good bacteria, but looking at all the bacteria in these samples. And to preface this, the honeybee gut microbiome is very uh, regulated. It's very conserved. There's about eight to 10 um, species that make up something like 95% of the gut microbiome of the bee. This has been very, um, this relationship has been developed over a long period of time and all the bacteria that are in the bee gut serve very specific roles. Uh, But, you know, there's still a 5% that is not those core, what I'm going to call core beneficial bacteria. And what we saw in the bees that were um, infected with Nozema and the bees that were given probiotics is that they had an increased number of what we call opportunistic pathogens Mm. in the gut. And so these are bacteria that aren't always bad. Pathogen kind of implies bad, something that infects. Um, But the word opportunistic just implies that they will, they are not always bad, but they will take that opportunity to become pathogenic if the conditions are correct. And so again, nozema increasing the number of opportunistic pathogens is kind of expected, but the probiotics did this too. And they did, they increased the number of opportunistic pathogens compared to nozema uh, even more. (laughs) So... (laughs) They had even higher numbers of these of these pathogens, potential pathogens. Um, and so I, I think this is where the story got a little bit complicated because it's not as simple as saying they restore some of the healthy gut bacteria. There's obviously something going on that's still uh, leading to a what I'm going to call like a dysbiotic or unbalanced state of the gut microbiome that is maybe allowing the overgrowth of these pathogens and potentially, you know, contributing to the increase in the mortality rate. Yeah, this is like a very finely tuned system and you're just sort of like throwing throwing whatever amount in of mm-hmm. what could potentially be good but end up being not good bacteria. Exactly, exactly. And another kind of interesting layer of this... <laughs> And, and first, I want to say, I think I kind of alluded to, okay, maybe the opportunistic pathogens are causing the, you know, increased mortality rate. That's a hypothesis I have, sure, but we didn't sure. actually test that because um, we didn't find that until, you know, after we'd already completed the experiments. Um, and so I think that would be an interesting follow-up is like, do, you know, are these bees that are dying, are they dying from these opportunistic pathogens? We don't know. Uh, but The other kind of interesting layer to this story is that when you look into where the bacteria in these probiotics are sourced from, none of them are actually sourced from honeybees. Mm. So they're all bacteria that were isolated from maybe mammals or environmental sources. And so, yeah, it's like you said, like just kind of throwing whatever (laughs) in there to this finely tuned system throws everything out of whack. And I... You know, I I think that's why this kind of um, product warrants more research because we didn't know what it did, and now it's saying it, we're seeing like okay, maybe it's not so great. That's definitely a kind of baffling assumption to make that these highly evolutionarily fine tuned things are just going to transfer when you transplant them like that. 
Yeah. And there's even research that shows that, um, so for example, one of the species in this probiotic formulation and a species that is very um, prevalent in the bee gut is lactobacillus. However, there are very different strains of lactobacillus and they do very different things. And there was a study that showed that um, one specific strain of lactobacillus was only able to colonize the host that it came from and you couldn't cross-colonize it with other hosts. So lactobacillus isolated from pigs could only colonize pigs. It couldn't colonize cows, that kind of thing. And so I I wonder if maybe there's something like that going on here as well, where even if these probiotics have lactobacillus, hence why we saw an increase in this beneficial lactobacillus in our bees, it's not the right kind of lactobacillus um, when we look more on the strain level uh, to get a little bit more fine-tuned. So it's... You know, it's not endogenous to the bee gut and we're just putting it in there. You were saying earlier about like, you know, you can go into a grocery store and buy lactobacillus yeah. off the shelf. <laughs> and it makes me think like, I don't, is that, is that mammalian lactobacillus? Yeah, I'm sure, I'm I don't sure know. it's not human lactobacillus. Probably not. <laughs> you know, I'm actually not sure. That would be really interesting to see where those strains are isolated from. Yeah. I don't know. Lactobacillus is everywhere. It's, it's one of those genera that is just, um, super prevalent. In that, that's all the organisms. one that's in yogurt, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and you, you had mentioned that maybe like you'd be interested in following up some of these mechanistic hypotheses. How would you go about doing that if you were to guess? Yeah. So I think that one thing that would be really interesting to look at is, um, maybe what are some of the compounds that are being produced by the bacteria in the bee gut and are these, you know, secondary or, you know, metabolites potentially from the microbes uh, interacting with the cells in the bee gut and triggering some kind of immune response. You know, we didn't really look at immune response. Um, Is the bee host treating the probiotics as a pathogen? Is that maybe contributing to the increase in death rate? We're not really sure. So I think something that uh, included looking at the uh, response of the immune system of the host um, would be an interesting next avenue. I also think that potentially looking at the activity of these probiotic strains in culture, so outside of the honeybee, but kind of looking at um, what they do in a in a dish would maybe tell us a little bit more about um, you know what they're capable of doing in the bee gut. All right, so maybe to shift gears a little bit, um, you have often been on the other side of these mics. We're sitting here in the lovely Orange Media KBVR studio, and uh, you have been a host for a couple of years. So what are, how did you initially get into that? Yeah, so I have always had an interest in science communication even before I really knew that's what it was called. Um, I'm sure my parents who are listening could probably tell you that, you know, I was involved in, in science fairs from a very young age. Um, I was speaking to, um, class, you know, my classes and, and with teachers and things about science, things that I was learning. And when I got to college, um, where I did my undergrad, I actually, uh, joined a radio station for the first time, and a friend of of mine and I hosted a science news show. So we just 
you know, looked up whatever the latest releases on uh, science.com were, and we kind of talked about them. On the first ever probiotic approval. <laughs> oh, you know, that would have been a great topic. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, and so when I got to graduate school, I knew I wanted to stick with science communication in some fashion. And I heard about inspiration dissemination, and I'm going to be honest, I don't remember how I heard about it. I, I'm not sure if I saw a email or if someone came up to me and was like, oh, you should go on the show. But I interviewed on the show as a graduate student in 2019. And I was like, this is awesome. This is definitely what I want to do. It's so cool to just talk to graduate students about their research and kind of get out of your own lab a little bit and learn something new. And so I had planned to join um, in the following term, which was winter 2020, which as we all know <laughs> what happened in that quarter, um, that did not work out. And so after ID went on hiatus for a little bit in 2021, I approached the team again about potentially joining as a host and trained. And that's what I've kind of been doing ever since. Although I guess not anymore. <laughs> what is, um, what is something you learned about how to bring science communication and science together. Yeah, I think it's, I think there's an art to it. I think it requires, um, you know, listening, paying attention to the people you're talking to, um, but also trying to connect what they're saying to maybe things you, you know, other things that you know about and trying to think really about how can I take this piece of information and make it accessible to someone who doesn't have a PhD background in science, um, like so many of us do. And it was a great exercise, especially when I was interviewing, um, you know, people in nuclear engineering, for example. I I don't know. I don't know the difference between fusion and fission. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I learned it. I learned uh, that on the show. And so, you know, while also kind of trying to draw your own life experiences into the stories you're telling also just being endlessly curious. And I think that is something that as scientists we're pretty good at. Um, for many of us, it's what drives us to go to the lab every day or, you know, do our research, uh, and applying that same curiosity to the world around us, to the people we interview, um, is just something that I think all scientists can do to try to learn a little bit more about, how to communicate their own research, I guess. That's great. And the next step is you are going to be moving to Boston, right? Yes, that is uh, what's happening on Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> so my, uh, my house is a chaotic stack of boxes right now. <laughs> <laughs> coast to coast move. Indeed. Yeah, me and my cat. All right. Well, you know how the drill goes at the end of these conversations. Um, so one question we always ask you as the guest is, um, what is your favorite thing about your research? You know, I know this question is coming because I'm the one that came up with it to <laughs> the show, and I don't, I didn't think about an answer. I, I think that my favorite part about my research is the thrill of discovery. And I don't know if that's, you know, specific to my research or specific to just research in general, but I think it, it's what has allowed me to transition kind of between multiple different disciplines is I just, I'm a big nerd about, 
about learning something new for the first time. So, you know, when I was doing this B work and I was like, oh my goodness, I need to recheck this data. Did the probiotics really kill the bees more? It was thrilling to be the first person in the world that knew that piece of information. And I just got so excited to share it with everyone. And, um, you know, that publication is hopefully going to be out uh, later this year or next year. um, So it can be shared with even more people. So I guess that kind of is two answers. I like the thrill of discovery and I like sharing what I've learned. We'll allow it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then the second um, tradition that we have on the show is to ask you to give a piece of advice and it could be to anybody, your former self or somebody in your field or whoever it might be. So what is your piece of advice and who is it for? Mm. I think my advice is to graduate students and any scientist really who wants to get better at communicating their research. Um, I think it is a, it is a worthy pursuit and it's a skill that can be learned. I think that people uh, tend to hear me on the radio and they're like, Oh, you're so good at that. Like you're just such a natural. And I'm like, no, it's a skill that you can develop. Like you can, (laughs) you too can learn this. And I think as as scientists, our work is so important, but it also has little value if we don't take it outside the lab to the people that it affects and to the greater world. And so, you know, in my case, beekeepers, beekeepers really need to know this information that I'm finding. And so it is a worthwhile skill to learn to communicate your research effectively. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. (laughs) Uh, And then lastly... You get to choose your outro song. So what have you chosen for your last outro? I chose Everybody Wants to Rule the World by Tears for Fears. And the reason is kind of lame, actually. (laughs) It's just been stuck in my head. I watched a show that featured this song heavily uh, recently. And it's just a good bop. It's like, I don't know, I just like (laughs) jamming out to it. So I'm excited to jam out here in the studio. Yeah. Wait, can I ask what show it was in? Oh, it was in a show called XO Kitty. It's on Netflix. It's like a mashup between like a high school drama and like a Korean drama. Um, (laughs) It it was very entertaining and enjoyable. Awesome. Yeah. Well, there you have it. That was Dr. Grace Dietzler. (laughs) Congratulations. Um, And this is Everybody Wants to Rule the World by Tears for Fears. And yeah, just before we go to that, just wanted to say thanks for um, being a part of the team on behalf of the ID team. I know you were instrumental in training me when I was I was on here. And me. Yeah, <laughs> getting started <laughs> earlier in the term. Um, so it's been great to have you on the team and best of luck um, in your next stage. Yeah, thank you so much. ID has been one of the most amazing things I've been able to be a part of during graduate school and I think it's in very good hands. Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamad. 
Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow this show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. Thanks again for listening and stay curious, my friends.